listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Hello, parents. Hello, teachers. Hello, students. Hello, general public. How you feeling today? Are you upset about the upcoming strikes next week as we have elementary teachers walking off the job on Monday? We've got high school teachers walking off the job on Tuesday. Elementary actually splitting it up. They're doing rotating strikes, so Toronto gets hit on Monday, and then a number of other boards get hit on Tuesday. And and this will all unfold day by day because the uh, union is required to give a five-day notice of any job action. So that's why, you know, it's like, okay, five days to Tuesday and so on and so on and so on. And uh, this news just in now from the Ministry of Education, 33,000 people have applied for that money that the Ford government is offering up to help with the expenses for child care and for daycare for parents who have kids that have, what are they going to do? What are you going to do next week? Where, what, are you taking the day off? I just noticed I got a, a sweet email from Chorus from uh, my employer saying, you know, there's different things that you can do. There, We have some flex scheduling. You, maybe you can, you know, figure out how to work from home. Maybe you can take a vacation day. You know, it, I, I'm fortunate in that you know, I have that opportunity. There's a lot of people out there who do not have that kind of opportunity. Well, the um, Premier was talking about it this morning and was asked, who is it that uh, he thinks the public is blaming in all of this? Is it the government's fault or is it the teacher's fault? Interesting here. Listen to this answer from Premier Doug Ford. And I always differentiate between the teachers and their union heads. I support the hardworking men and women that, that teach our children every single day. I think they're, uh, they don't have good leadership, the uh, head of the unions. They just uh, they want to argue no matter what premier, no matter what government uh, is in, in power. And they, uh, they have to understand uh, because of the last 15 years of mismanagement, scandal and waste, we're in this position. That is Doug Ford speaking this morning outside of the Premier's office on the second floor of Queen's Park, saying that unions have bad leadership, that the teachers, they have bad leadership for their union. And he makes the point there that I think resonates with a lot of people, especially if you've had kids in the system for a while. You might remember that under Dalton McGinty, who after what about a dozen years or so of constantly upping the salaries and sweetening the deals with teachers, decided to try and pull back. And suddenly, all of a sudden, he, you know, he, he found austerity late in his tenure as premier and tried to pull back. Uh, remember, he brought in Bill 115, which said basically that the government could impose a deal on teachers and teachers lost their minds. The unions lost their minds. There were walkouts. There were protests. The Dalton McGinty was burned in effigy. I'm, I'm quite certain, if not in effigy, he was he he was mocked. He he was just the absolute worst. And you think to yourself, if teachers unions can say that Dalton McGinty, who increased their pay significantly over his tenure, if he can be demonized then who possibly can come to the table with a deal that the unions would like? Now, what about this $48 bucks a day? You may have heard that number yesterday, and I, I want to explain it to you because sometimes the context in these things is lost. If you heard that the government of Ontario is going to spend $48 million a day paying parents, well, that's not true. It is not true. The number is up 
to $48 million a day. That would be if all unions walked out at the same time. We don't have that yet. That would also be if all of the eligible parents across the province signed up for the cash. We don't have that yet either. So keep that in mind. It's not $48 million a day. But let's get back to this, because this is so interesting from the Premier. Again, Premier, who has the support? Who has the hearts and minds of the people? And they face us every three to four years, no matter who's who's standing here. And uh, it's just a little uh, way of supporting them if they have to go to daycare and uh, have their kids in daycare. They have lives to carry on. They have to go to work. And so I, I think uh, it was a good move that we're using the teachers' salaries to compensate the parents that have to pay, be it $60, $40, to put their uh, children in, in daycare. Using the teachers' salaries. So again, that $48 million a day, up to $48 million a day, that is being paid for, according to the Premier, by the salaries that they are not paying out because teachers are not on the job. Premier was also asked two other very interesting questions. One, would he be willing to go above 1% in terms of pay? You may recall that the province has already brought in legislation limiting wage increases in the public sector to 1%, would he go above 1% to be able to get a deal? The Premier said no, absolutely no way. And then asked, would he be willing to bring in back-to-work legislation to solve all of this? Wouldn't say. Keep in mind that the House returns the Tuesday after Family Day. So if the government wanted to bring in back-to-work legislation prior to that, they would have to recall the House. Those are the updates in the education file. Let's turn to the city right now because we have a new report coming out from city staff all about Rail Deck Park. Now, Rail Deck Park is a city-led proposal for a new park approximately 8 hectares above Union Station Rail Corridor. That would be between Bathurst and Blue Jays Way. The downtown rail corridor area is the last remaining site suitable for a large park to support the growth in the downtown and serve as a city-wide asset. This from the City Public Relations Department, from the Communications Department this morning. Now, the airspace that the city is seeking to buy is between Spadina Avenue and Blue Jays Way, south of Front Street. And negotiations with the owners to acquire, acquire the airspace in the Rail Deck Park project at fair market value have been ongoing since 2018. No success Yet. So basically, the city hasn't been able to say, well, you know, l- l- let us buy that from you. You're the owner's not interested. So now we have the possibility that that property just may be taken by the city. Joe Cressy is a city councillor and joins me on the line. Hi, councillor. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. You support just taking this property? Yeah, so the act of expropriation, which if we cannot come to a negotiated agreement on the sale, uh, we can, and the report being recommended today by staff, will move to expropriate it, which means we pay for it, but it is uh, at the city's discretion to expropriate land. And I'll how, tell how you, does a va- sorry, how does a value then uh, established if you're going to expropriate so when you expropriate land, and the, the city expropriates land on a near monthly basis for transit projects, infrastructure projects, park projects like we're talking about here, uh, you, the owner of the land, in the case of an expropriation, is compensated over and above market value. And so 
the the act of expropriation is a last resort, but it, it is often a necessary one. You can imagine in situations where you have a city building objective to build a new subway, or we're doing water main work, or in this case, we're building a new central park. If you have a landowner who's standing in the way of the broader city interest, we can fully compensate them and pay them, but through an act of expropriation. Uh, is, is there a recourse, a court recourse for the owners to try and challenge that? So in the in the event of an expropriation um, for for city purposes, the onus is on the owners can request a hearing of necessity, and at that hearing, the city has to demonstrate that expropriation is in the city's interest and that it meets the city objectives. And so it is exceptionally rare. In fact, I'm not aware of a case where expropriation is turned down because the cities only do it when it's absolutely necessary for the broader public good, such as a new subway or water main or park. And in the case of Rail Deck Park, this is not only in the interest of the broader public good, it's actually necessary for the next hundred years. You know, when they built Central Park, uh, they built Central Park in New York City before the population density exploded. And we're here in the city of Toronto, where the population of downtown is going to double to a half a million people in the next 25 years. And if we don't seize this last opportunity to build a grand central park, soon enough we'll have condos in the sky, but no parks for people to go after. If I recall, Central Park was a gift, was it not? It was not expropriated. Oh, that's correct. But it, it was planned for the future. Uh, and the but that's, I mean, that's the point we're making here, is, is that you're expropriating property from owners who do not want to sell. Oh, yeah. And, and I don't view that as controversial in the slightest. We, we, as I say, the city expropriates property on a near monthly basis. That is, that is common. It is used frequently and it is used for the public good. And so the, the question here has to be, is this in the public good to build a central park? And great cities invest in their future and they build the spaces that actually make cities livable. I mean, if we aspire to be a great livable city, which we are becoming a great city, but one that maintains that livability, you can't have a half a million people living in condos in the sky with nowhere to go after. And so that's that's why I reference Central Park, because it's part of thinking to the future. It's about that visionary city building that is necessary and all great cities need to do it. And, and so that's why I'm not only a supporter of Rail Deck Park. It's why I've been leading on this file with the mayor for some time now. In my quick uh, scan of that report to from city staff, it doesn't identify the business owners. Is there a reason for that? No, the, the business, so the land is owned by CN and Toronto Terminus Railways. And they have a conditional sale with a private developer. Uh, for people who followed the, the saga of Rail Deck Park for the last couple of years, there is a developer who had proposed, rather than having the city build a park, to deck over the rail corridor and build condos there. And the city of Toronto, we actually rezoned that land so it can only be parkland. And so there is, we will in our negotiations, whether it's a negotiated agreed sale price or through expropriation, it is with that private developer and CN that with that agreement will have to be made. Does Rail Deck Park have an overall cost estimate at this point? Uh, not at this point. Uh, we The detailed structural engineering and condition assessment is ongoing. Uh, here's, what I can tell you around parkland is it's not cheap. 
So to give you a sense, one acre of land in downtown Toronto, just an acre of land, if you wanted to go and buy a surface level parking lot, one of the few remaining in downtown, that goes about $100 million an acre. That it would not be feasible or possible for the city to acquire 21 acres at $100 million an acre. It, it, we don't have the money to do it, nor would it be possible because there aren't 21 contiguous acres of land anymore. And so that's why this proposal not only is the air above the rail corridor significantly cheaper than $100 million, our estimates, but also it's the last sizable consolidated piece of property where you could build a central park. The only other way we could establish a central park in downtown Toronto would be to start buying and tearing down buildings. And we're not about to do that. And so that's why in a growing city, if you want to build the parks and the infrastructure to make it livable, in a city like ours, we now need to be creative. You can't buy and tear down buildings to build parks. So therefore, building over the rail corridor, as they did in, in Chicago with Millennium Park, is, a part, is innovative thinking to accomplish our goals. Joe Cressy is a Toronto City Councillor. Always great to have you on the program, Joe. Appreciate it. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome back to the program. A deadly accident earlier this week with a stolen tractor trailer has put a spotlight on a a jump in a certain kind of theft. New numbers provided to Global News by Peel Police show a sharp rise in reported tractor trailer thefts in the past five years. In 2015, Peel Police fielded calls for a total of 98 reported cargo thefts. It also received a total of 175 reports of stolen tractors, 59 stolen trailers without any cargo. Our Camille Caramali is a reporter with Global News, and he joins me on the line. He's working on this story for us tonight. Hey, Camille. Hey, Alan. So you touched on the 2015 stats. And so just to show you a comparison, you said 98 cargo thefts in 2015. That climbed significantly year after year to the point where in 2018, it was at 341. So uh, almost a jump of uh, almost 300 cargo thefts in the span of three years. So just showing you how significantly that number has been climbing and uh, what police and uh, the Ontario Trucking Association are calling more brazen and more, uh, you know, just more overt thefts that these guys don't feel like they're afraid to just grab and steal some of these transport trucks, some of them in broad daylight. Before we get to the possible causes of all of this, let's back up to that fatal accident that happened this week. Give me the details on that. Yeah, so we do know that the uh, driver of that transport truck died when he slammed into an Esso gas station on Mavis and Eglinton Avenue West. That was in Mississauga, Allen, and, uh, you know, this sort of stemmed from covering that story it was just boxes and boxes of meat and myself and other reporters were just talking to police as to you know this person died trying to steal uh kilograms and kilograms of meat so uh, it just seemed like a uh, a puzzling uh crime to result in such a tragedy to result in this uh, alleged thief losing his life uh after slamming into two vehicles um, you know, witnesses also told us that that vehicle, that transport truck, was being chased by two black vans as well. Uh, so it seemed like it was a high-speed collision 
where this uh, thief was trying to get away with uh, thousands, of, well, hundreds of kilograms of product uh, in, in terms of meat, and then ended up uh, losing his life as a result. What, what was also interesting about that is that police said that the actual cab had been stolen days prior to the transport truck. Exactly, and that's also what stemmed so many questions, was that we reached out to the semi-truck company, so not the trailer itself, but just the front of that tractor-trailer, uh, was reported stolen a week prior. So it also just raised questions as to how much thought these thieves put into these uh, these heists, where they actually steal the tractor portion itself uh, as, as early as a week beforehand and then attach it to a trailer because police said uh, that uh, truck, that tractor rather, was attached to a trailer uh, full of meat just the night before that collision happened. So it looked like that tractor was just sitting there idle, uh, hidden somewhere, and police said that's one of the methods they use is they steal the, the semi-truck and then they hide it somewhere and then find uh, a trailer full of product and they can go steal. I, am I watching too many movies or does this sound like organized crime? That's exactly what police are saying, and that's exactly what the Ontario, Ontario Trucking Association is saying. So what was really interesting in my conversations with Peel Police as well as the Ontario Trucking Association is that, look, uh, there isn't as much resources put into this when it comes to police work because they it is deemed or seen uh, conversationally as a victimless crime. But the Ontario Trucking Association said, look, you guys have to look deeper into where this money goes. Uh, police call it a uh, low-risk, high-reward crime. And so, uh, you know, criminals, they do it time and time again because the other thing police said is that the, the justice system doesn't really do its job. These guys are back out on the street. Even if they're busted, they're back out on the street in 24 hours. So it's a process that can happen time and time again. And the payoff is enormous. So you could get hundreds of thousands of dollars when you resell these products after stealing them. And then uh, you mentioned organized crime. What the Ontario Trucking Association says is that money goes towards more nefarious criminal activity. So really, this is the foundation. This is the base as to where these uh, criminals are getting their money and their funding from for bigger crimes. What? Uh, what are police going to do about it? I mean, what's the Trucking Association asking of the police? Yeah, so they're asking for uh, police to step up their game, so to speak, because they're, they're asking for more accountability, for them to do more, and uh, they're asking for more resources. And, you know, you rarely see police talk candidly to the media. They usually have their talking points. But Detective Paul Allen from the uh, cargo theft unit at Peel. By the way, Peel and York are the only, um, the only uh, police forces in Canada that have their own cargo theft units. No other, uh, no other police force has that. And that just shows how often it happens here that it warrants having your, their own unit. But he spoke so candidly to me, uh, candidly rather, to me saying that they're just lacking resources. So we looked at uh, last year's number in 2018, rather, and that was 341 cargo thefts. He said they only have three or four detectives on uh, that unit to look at 341 cargo thefts in the span of a year. So he said they're overwhelmed, and uh, that's part of the reason. But also on top of that, it just seems like the justice system isn't doing its job in terms of these guys are back out on the street in 24 hours. So he expressed a little bit of frustration as well. But he also said, look, the onus also has to be on these trucking companies to make sure they beef up their security. So uh, higher fences, 
uh, more security cameras. And the thing is, he also said something really interesting in that a lot of these things, a lot of these heists are inside jobs. So there should be a, a he's asking for those trucking companies to have a better vetting process, because when they hire some of those employees, some of those employees are working for those uh, organized crime groups and are tipping them off as to when a particular truckload uh, will be leaving. And so then that's when those thieves target that, those uh, those transport trucks. Camille Caramali is a Global News reporter, and it's a fascinating story. You can read about it on globalnews.ca and watch it tonight on Global News at 5.30 and 6. Camille, appreciate you being on the program. Thanks for your time, Alan. I want to quickly get to Catherine McDonald, our crime specialist, who's also in Peel region today, where the police have now identified a body found in Brampton as that of a Toronto woman who went missing recently. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Alan. What can you tell me about this case? Uh, well, it seems to be another alleged, another alleged domestic homicide, very sadly. Uh, this was a woman named uh, Hiral Patel, 28 years old. She was reported missing on, sun- on Sunday, uh, from what I understand by family and friends. Uh, she had last been seen Saturday night in the area of Islington and Steeles in Toronto. And uh, so they, like, the following day, they called the Toronto police. The police put out a bulletin with her photo. They were concerned for her safety. And they began searching. And Monday, they put up a command post in the area where she was last seen. And it was Monday around 5.30. Peel police tell me that a, uh, someone was out walking a dog in an area, a wooded area around a, a sort of a water a little lake, a man-made lake, near Queen Street and Highway 50 in Brampton. They were walking their dog, and they came upon this body. Um, police were called. It was deemed suspicious. And now that an autopsy has been performed, police have now identified uh, the body as that of Harald Patel. They say that this was uh, no, this was uh, this was no accident. She was murdered, and they're now looking for her um, ex-husband. His name is Rakesh Bahai Patel. 36 of Toronto. They're urging him to get a lawyer and to surrender himself. Uh, and uh, yeah, just another sad case of a woman allegedly murdered at the hands of her former spouse. Have they released a photo of the suspect, Catherine? They haven't. Uh, investigators tell me that they hope uh, to, that he will surrender. If, if in the next day or so he doesn't, they will be doing that. And we're trying to find out more about this relationship. You know, we've done a number of stories in the last year of women uh, who have been leaving their husbands, and this is uh, this is how it's ended. And once again, in this case, uh, she was not with her husband, according to police. And the question is, um, you know, had she divorced him or was, were there threats made? Was there any history of this prior to this? Uh, we've spoken in the past and we've talked in this program about, uh, you know, in the South Asian community, for example, there's a real stigma to women leaving. Uh, often, uh, I did a story last year where um, a man uh, allegedly murdered his wife with a machete. In that case, she he had, he had brought her here, uh, married her, and uh, she left him, and then he came and, and found her and allegedly killed her with a machete. And again, in the South Asian community, uh, I interviewed a woman with a, a woman's uh, center who said that, you know, of the women that come from that community uh, to talk about leaving their husbands, 90% never do leave because of the stigma and the fear they have that if they leave, uh, they will be um, punished or there will be violence because uh, that's seen as uh, shaming the husband in this community. Extremely sad story, and I know you're working on that for 5.30 tonight on Global News. Thank you, Catherine. I appreciate you being on the program. You're welcome. A spokesperson for Toronto Fire Services says firefighters were called to a building last night at Bloor Street East near Young before 6.45 p.m. after an elevator cable snapped. 
The representative said it's believed that a man who got into the elevator on the 14th floor before the uh, elevator went into free fall for a short period of time before emergency brakes kicked in. Firefighters went down 70 feet from the 14th floor to access or to get the man to bring him out. Here's Don Beam from the Toronto Fire Service. He's doing fine. He walked out. They harnessed him up, repelled him up with one of our rescuers. They came up together in tandem, and he basically got out of the shaft and walked out onto the floor. They unhooked him and walked him away to the paramedics. Absolutely terrifying. I spent a lot of years as the Queen's Park Bureau Chief, and if you've ever been to the Queen's Park building, the elevators there are terrifying. They are they constantly break down. You get in the thing, you press the button, and you just hope. Because sometimes it jostles around. There's been a number of times where people just get trapped in there for a couple hours. Travis Danraj, our, our current Queen's Park Bureau Chief, has been trapped in the elevator for a couple of hours. Now, that's funny. Sure, it's funny. And, you know, it's it's great that this gentleman was not seriously injured last night, but this kind of thing scares the bajabbers out of me. Jamie Marockers, Global News reporter, working on this story for us tonight. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Alan. This is like my biggest fear, especially now that I'm pregnant. You fear getting into the elevator. Oh, yeah. So I went to the apartment building and... You know, I'm contemplating, do I get in one of these elevators? What do I do here? Obviously, I didn't. I stayed on the ground floor. Yeah, I I wouldn't recommend in your current condition to climb up the 14 flights either, though. No, and actually, I'm going to throw you some uh, new information. You're the first that I'm going to report this to. Um, I actually spoke to the gentleman who was on the elevator when this took place. And he tells me that he actually got in on the 34th floor, not the 14th floor, but the elevator stopped in between the 14th and and whatever floor it is below. I know that some buildings don't have 13 floors for bad luck reasons. Um, And he had to be rescued from that point. Uh, But he said it definitely fell more than, you know, a few floors. How did he describe what happened to him? Well, he's 21 years old. He's a Ryerson student, and um, he told me that this is also one of his greatest fears, being in free fall in an elevator. He said he got in. He was on his cell phone. He didn't really think anything of it, <clears throat> Excuse me, but the elevator started making a clunky noise. Um, he's actually not a resident of the building. He was actually visiting a friend, and he tells me that suddenly... The elevator was in free fall. He had heard like something that sounded like banging. He assumes that was the cable snapping. He's in free fall. Suddenly the whole thing stopped. He said he was actually in the air for a few seconds before hitting uh, the ground on his knees, and he does have a little bit of an injury to his knees. He said they're banged up, but overall he's okay. More than anything, he said he was shaken up, and the fact that he had to stay in the elevator for about two hours to wait to get rescued was terrifying. Two hours just sitting in there hoping the thing didn't drop again. Oh, yeah. And I, I know that elevators have fail safes and that sort of thing. But can you imagine you were just in free fall? You hit the ground on the elevator, and now you have to wait to get out because you're stuck in between two floors and they can't get you out. That just sounds absolutely terrifying and, and kind of something that goes with it. And we've heard this time and time again is that in this province, we have a serious shortage in elevator repair people. And so what tends to happen, a lot of these downtown condos, an elevator will go out of service, and it'll just stay out of service because they can't get anybody to come in and fix it. I mean, don't I know it? I've spent my last three years here in downtown Toronto living with this elevator situation, and my current building only has one elevator. So if it goes out, you're hiking 
up those stairs. But the people, the residents who do live in this building, I did speak with them, and they tell me that there's consistent issues. We have reached out to the management company um, that takes care of this building. They have yet to respond to us. But I'm now on my way to speak with the Technical Standards and Safety Authority to find out exactly what went wrong here, um, how long of a history these elevators have. This building is very old. There's three elevators total. Um, One obviously has been knocked out because of this incident, Um, but the residents didn't seem too surprised that something like this happened, which is also terrifying. Now, did fire actually confirm that the cable snapped, or or, are we just, just hearing that? Um, well, the gentleman who was inside the elevator told me that the cable had snapped. Um, what we've been told by um, the, a representative from fire is the same sort of thing. So that's, that seems to add up. Jamie Marocker is a global news reporter with her feet firmly planted on the ground, on the <laughs> ground floor. Do yeah. not get in the elevator, Jamie. Nope. <laughs> All right, look forward to your report tonight. Thank you so much. Bye. Welcome back to the program. We have some news coming in from London. Canada and other countries are demanding compensation from Iran for the families of people killed when Iranian forces shot down that airliner. That is one of five elements in an agreement coming out of a meeting Canada hosted in London today with representatives from Britain, Sweden, Afghanistan, and Ukraine. The participating countries are also calling for Iran to respect families' wishes on repatriating the remains of the 176 people killed when that plane came down. Now, Doug Ford was speaking this morning at Queen's Park about Iran, uh, announcing a scholarship program, but then he weighed in on the country and its regime. Here is what he had to say. I want to send a message, and it might not get over there. I support the protesters that are out there. We believe in democracy here in Canada. We'd love to see nothing less than democracy in Iran. That is Doug Ford calling for democracy in Iran. Interesting here, though, and I noticed this earlier this week with a CBC tweet uh, talking about Stephen Harper and what Stephen Harper had said about Iran. And this is where you don't use the term regime change, because what Doug Ford just called for right there was for a change in the regime, not for regime change. And you say, Alan, those are the same things. They are not. Regime change has a specific meaning. It refers to George W. Bush and his push to oust Saddam from Iraq. In other words, change of a regime from outside that an outside external force would come in and remove a regime and change it to something that it found more likable. That is not what Doug Ford is calling for, He is, nor did Stephen Harper call for that, by, uh, by the way. Both are calling for a change in the regime, and I just wanted to point out that those two things are different. Next up on the program, Melanie Zettler who is a global news producer who has been looking into a really a fascinating story that I didn't really know anything about, and that is what happens to clothing at retailers that is not sold. Does it go to the landfill? Does it go to the needy? You're going to be surprised where it ends up and what happens to it. Melanie joins me on the line now. Hi, Melanie. Hey there, Alan. Thanks for having me. 
So what happens to clothing at, let's say, I don't know, Oshkosh or Victoria's Secret? Those are two store, uh, two stores that you have featured in your reporting. Right. So uh, this all sort of blew up and came to light last week when uh, a Toronto resident uh, happened to be walking past Dufferin Mall. She found uh, several garbage bags filled with Oshkosh Carter's clothing. Um, and when she opened up the bag, she discovered that everything that was in those bags had been, it looked like they were deliberately cut up um, or damaged and destroyed. There was a picture frame that had been cracked and clothing was like cut up the middle um, and just ruined. And so um, we did do some digging and uh, I too was very surprised to hear that there is actually a something called the federal duty drawback, which allows uh, or a financial incentive, which gives retailers um, a discount on their next imports um, if they send items to landfill or incinerate them. So instead of those items either being shipped back to wherever they had originally come from or ending up in thrift shops, that they actually must be destroyed. Well, that's, I mean, it's the, it's the financial incentive. So, I mean, why would they stop if the financial incentive is there? I mean, some, this, this doesn't happen with all retailers, um, but it is, uh, from what I've learned, very widespread. Um, in this case, Carter's Oshkosh got caught. Um, we also did ch- uh, chat with a uh, Victoria, former Victoria's Secret manager who alleges the same practice at that retail chain. Um, so, you know, and, you know, I- I've been getting a lot of responses from people who say, you know, I work at a home improvement store. This happens there. I work at an electronics store. This happens there. So we're talking about headphones, perfectly good headphones, perfectly good pieces of, you know, furniture or other items that the retailer would rather destroy and send to landfill than discount or donate to the needy. What has the response been from those two companies that you just mentioned? Victoria's Secret had, has not responded. Carter's only responded last week with a, um, you know, a short statement specific to the items um, that were discovered outside of Dufferin Mall, but nothing confirming that this is a company-wide practice. So here is the flip side to all of that. As it seems nonsensical to just simply destroy uh, perfectly good merchandise, From the retailer point of view, they do not want to see their product either returned to them, uh, where they would have to pay out some kind of a refund for something they didn't actually sell, or if it ends up in, you know, a a secondary seller, that is going to undercut that retailer's ability to charge premium prices. Right. So, you know, other than this financial incentive, um, the other two big reasons are what you've just outlined, you know, the devaluing of a brand, um, not wanting certain people to wear their brand, not wanting their product to be sold at a discount, because again, it speaks to that devaluing. And the other reason is the work it takes for, you know, sales associates to process things, write things up, take inventory, put it in the system. All of that takes time and time is money. Certainly, could there not be another path here where somehow uh, these products, they don't just sort of get thrown out into the ecosystem where retailers can't find them or can't track them, and we don't have to destroy them? There must be something else we can do. 
Well, Alan, there is something else that can be done, and uh, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, you know, call me crazy, but I'm pretty sure we're in the midst of a, of a garbage crisis. Um, and, you know, some would say that, you know, this, uh, this planet of ours is, is fragile. Um, so, you know, it is something that we need to be thinking about. Um, and a company called, a, a charity called Brands for Canada has been thinking about that for a while. And they have partnered with, you know, a number of companies, um, including Air Canada and Winners. Um, and so these organizations like Air Canada, for example, you know, say they change the, you know, the pilot suit jackets from black to navy blue. They will donate all of their, you know, pretty high-end tailored uh, blazers and coats to Brands for Canada they will debrand. They will physically remove tags and uh, anything that would identify where where it came from, and give to one of their eighty uh, partnering charities who work with uh, you know people in need. Doesn't that make sense? It it does seem to be a, a lot more logical than employing a staff member to sit around with a pair of scissors to cut things up so that it can't be worn. Well, and you know, I'll tell you too, is, you know, a number of the people I spoke to said that, you know, they actually um, felt sick going to work because of this practice. Um, They hated the company that they worked for. And in many cases, they end up leaving because, you know, how horrible is it to sit there? I mean, these are, you know, people who are probably making minimum wage. They could use these items and they're sitting there and they have to cut and destroy. And then, and then they have to walk to the dumpster in the back and, in some cases, secretly dispose of these items. Melanie Zettler is a producer with Global News, and you can read her story on globalnews.ca. It's on there right now. Melanie, thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks, Alan. Jackson Prosco, who is our reporter in Washington, reporting now that the U.S. Senate has just adopted Uzmeca, USMCA, by a vote of 89 to 10. Now it goes to President Trump's desk for a signature, but the president has other things on his mind, namely articles of impeachment, which have now been forwarded to the Senate. I want to send a message, and it might not get over there. There's two calculations here. Um, To actually convict and remove a president, you actually need two-thirds of the Senate to to be on board with that. So that would mean that 20 Republicans would have to join with Democrats to vote to remove Trump from office. And there's no way that's going to happen. But where the mood is shifting is that you're seeing a growing number of Republicans on an issue on which you only need a simple majority, and that is the format of the trial. And specifically, should they be allowed to uh, call witnesses to testify at that trial? Should they be allowed to introduce new evidence that wasn't presented before the House. And there, I think you're seeing a growing number of Republicans who are willing to break ranks with the party and uh, essentially say, look, if we're going to do this, we have to do it right. It has to be a fair and open trial. Uh, You had this explosive interview that came out yesterday with a guy named Lev Parnas, a Ukrainian guy who was a a cohort of Rudy Giuliani, and he basically uh, implicated President Trump directly in a criminal conspiracy run by Rudy Giuliani to pressure the Ukrainians to dig up dirt on Joe Biden. Uh, right now, Lev Parnas not scheduled to testify, but obviously things like that are going to sort of uh, uh, lend the push to, to really allow witnesses to come forward and testify. And you might have some Republicans on board with that. That could still happen. That is Jackson Prosco reporting from Washington. We're keeping our eye on that developing situation. One more story here today, and that is that uh, you can now buy edibles. 
at the OCS. OCS, the, the new uh, 2.0 cannabis is now available. You, you, they've been in stores already, but now you can order it online. And just before you fire up the big fatty, let me just play this story for you, because this is going to make you think twice. Do you have this? This is going to make you think twice before you light up. Police arrested 26-year-old Austin Schrader and his girlfriend in a drug bust at Schrader's apartment. There they found 70 grams of marijuana, a small amount of MDMA, bongs, and a drug scale. But it's what Schrader told police after the bust that makes the case disturbing. Police say they found unknown powder in some of the drugs recovered. Schrader admitted to them he mixed some of his deceased mother's ashes into the marijuana and ingested it. The criminal complaint does not say if he mixed his mother's ashes with the pot he's accused of selling to others. Ryan Burrow, ABC News. Oh, that is so disgusting. I, I, I mean, you know, go ahead and bogart that joint. I do not want, I don't want to smoke your mom. I don't. You know, your mama. <laughs> Didn't Keith Richards do that? Smoke his mom? No, he smoked his dad, I think. Did he really? I don't know. I'm going to say that's going to put an acrid taste to the weed. I'm just going to suggest that. I don't know what the THC content of your mother is, <laughs> but it's not, it's probably not helping. Wow. Smoke them if you got them, folks. That's it for me. Thanks so much for joining me this hour. And join me tonight, Global News at 5.30 and 6 on TV, simulcast right here on this radio station beginning at 6 p.m. I'm back again tomorrow at noon.